The sermon title this morning is Fear. Now, I don't know how many of you remember, I preached a sermon on fear about three years ago. And for some reason, God wants this preached again. So it's a different sermon. Trust me, you're not going to have to sit through the same thing, but it's the same topic. And I think Brad did an awesome job on the slide. You know, there's the, there's the path we're on, and there's fear right in the middle of it. So my first question this morning, because you guys know I do that, what are you afraid of? <laughs> what? Unknown. Unknown, okay. Failure. Pardon me? Failure. Failure. That's a good one. War. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that one until this morning, Diane. I'm sorry. Um, so, so we all have fears that creep into the daily life, in spite of what the Bible says, right? In spite of what Jesus tells us. How about this one? The, bo the boss calls you into their office on a Friday afternoon. You like that one? I had that happen to me twice. Your doctor's office that never calls you calls the day after you visit, and they got to talk to you. That's a good one. One of Pastor Jeff's favorites, one of the kids is out driving at night, and the phone rings. Someone you love is taken by ambulance to the hospital. Those are just starters. You know, I, I love telling young people life hasn't even begun to mess with you yet because life is full of fear. Webster defines fear as an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. That's pretty good, I think. That's a good definition. What's the biblical definition of fear? Well, that kind of splits into two separate things. We have fear of the Lord, and we have fear of the consequences of sin. Deuteronomy 4, verse 10 says, Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, Summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live, and they will teach their children to fear me also. Can you imagine standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and having God address you directly? I'd, uh, I'd lose it. I'm sorry. That's 1 John 4, verse 18, an example of the consequence of sin. It says, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid... It is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. So there, there's kind of a dichotomy there. Okay, we fear God. And, and that kind of fear is more of a respect for God. We fear the consequences of sin um, because that's punishment. And if we... If we're under that sin, then we haven't fully experienced Jesus' love. So, more to be afraid of. But I kind of think about it this way. Fear gives the enemy permission to attack me. Pretty simple. Because I doubted God's promises and I walked in unbelief. God can't work in doubt and unbelief. 
We've heard that many, many times. And lately, I've been experiencing quite a bit of fear. A couple people mentioned things. Fear of the future. Fear of having no friends. Fear of being alone. Fear of my wife dying. Fear of being broke. Fear of being unsafe. Fear of further sickness. Fear of death. You name it. Why in the world did God give us that emotion? You know, you get that, that bitter taste. You get that tightness right in here. When I'm afraid, I usually find myself projecting my fear into unhealthy coping mechanisms. And we've all done it, I'm sure. It could look like me being angry towards the people who are trying to help me navigate these circumstances. Generally, those are those I love. It could look like me running away from the problem by emotionally isolating and not acknowledging how I feel. You know, like when pastor says you're going to preach next Sunday. It could look like me skipping meals or losing hours of sleep that are especially necessary for my daily functioning. It could look like me throwing myself into work and ignoring everything else. Boy, I used to do that a lot. I'm an engineer, it's easy to do that. You know, you can get lost in the calculations and, and fear can manifest in several other ways. It can manifest in your health. It can manifest in the health of a loved one because if somebody's worried about you because you're not acting right, they might feel sick too. So we've all faced some kind of fear. It almost always takes a toll on health it amplifies the system of any chronic pain that you might have or illness. And what else does it do? It affects our relationship with Jesus, right? It's hard to worship when you're afraid. After all, one of the final things he said to us is in Matthew 14, verse 27. He says, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Now, <laughs> Jesus told us that. And here we are this morning, we're all saying, yeah, we're afraid of stuff. So what do we do about it? Oftentimes, and I love this, it's one of my pet peeves, people tell us, just have more faith. <laughs> I rank that one right up there with pray harder. Because we are weak and human, we can't simply muster up faith to just keep chugging along, looking at the circumstances which are causing the fear itself. I mean, there it is, right in the middle of the road. It's blocking us. Now, what does the Bible say about faith? The Bible says we all have a what? A measure of faith, right? The implication is, is that faith is either off or on. It's kind of like a switch. It's tough to quantify it. In the King James Version of Romans 12, verse 3, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So Paul calls it the measure of faith. So is it easy to increase faith? I don't think so. Can it be done? Sure. Can we do it ourselves? No, absolutely not. 
Instead, we have to look to who God is. God can increase our faith. Now, how does he do it? Well, we heard not too long ago, and I think it was in Mark, but this is Luke. In Luke 17, 5, the apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith. They say, Lord, increase our faith. And in typical fashion that Jesus loves to do, he gives them two stories. Five to, verse 5 to 10, he says, The apostles said to the Lord, Show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, If you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, May you be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's kind of hard to envision, isn't it? First of all, mustard seed is very small. And you think it takes a lot to move a, a tree. Verse 7 says, when a servant, and this, this one's a little bit more difficult. When verse, verse 7 says, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he is told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. Now, how does Jesus help him with that story? Well, in two ways. He's telling them the truth here. Even the way that he responds shows us that faith comes by what? Hearing, right? Knowing certain things should increase our faith. First, he strengthens their faith by telling us in Luke 17, 6, that the crucial issue in accomplishing great things to advance the kingdom of God is not the quantity of faith, but the power of God. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. By referring to the mustard seed of, after being asked about increased faith, he kind of pushes the attention away from the quantity of faith to what? Who moves the mulberry tree? Come on, who moves the mulberry tree? God, right? Through faith, God moves mulberry trees. And it does not depend decisively on the quantity of our faith. That's why the mustard seed. But it depends on God's power and wisdom and what? Love for us. And knowing this, we are helped not to worry about our faith and are inspired to trust God's initiative and his power. Faith as small as a mustard seed. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe the whole creed thing. So God will use that faith and he'll move that mulberry tree. Now, he helps their faith grow by telling them also that when they've done all that they are commanded to do, they are still radically dependent on grace. Jesus gives the illustration, and you might want to read it again in, that, in those verses 7 to 10. The, the gist of it is that the owner of a slave does not become a debtor to the slave, no matter how much work the slave does. The meaning is that God is never in our debt. And Luke 17, 10 sums it up. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We are always in God's debt. And we will never be able to pay this debt, nor are we ever meant, nor are we ever meant to. 
That's important. We're not meant to pay that debt back. We will always, I, I told you I'd get her talking. <laughs> we will always be dependent on grace. We're never going to work our way up out of debt to a place where God is in our debt. Can you imagine that? I can't. Look at Romans 11, verse 35, where Paul says, and who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? Now, when it says in Luke 7, 9, 17, 9, that the owner does not thank the slave, the idiom for thank is kind of provocative. It, it, I think the idea is that thanks is a response to grace. Well, the reason the owner doesn't thank the slave is that the servant is not giving the owner more than what the owner deserves. He is not treating the owner with grace. Grace is being treated what? Better than we deserve, right? So it's with us in relation to God. We never treat God with grace. We never give him more than he deserves, which means that he never owes us thanks. God never says thank you to us. Instead, he is always giving us more than what we deserve, and we are always owing him thanks. You know, out of God's bounty, he continually gives us more than we deserve. So the lesson here is when we have done all we should do, we've helped our fellow Christians, we've fed the poor, raised godly children, boldly proclaimed Christ, God owes us no thanks for that. Instead, we will at that moment relate to him as debtors to grace, just as we do now. You know, that, that's something to think about. I think if you really didn't know what was going on, you could be kind of depressed by that. No matter how hard I work for God, I'll always be in his debt. But actually, that's a good thing, right? That's why God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to save us, and we're always in debt to that. In, in recovery, they call that keeping it green. You know, you're always thankful, always grateful. So that was a little rabbit trail. <laughs> How does that relate to fear? Well, if only God can increase our faith. After all, he's the one that moved that mulberry tree. And that's what we need to fight the fear. Then we need God to rely on God's grace to fight the fear. So at the beginning, we talked about what we're afraid of. Let's dig into it a little bit more. How about pain and suffering? You all afraid of pain and suffering? Think of, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of us have had sciatica. We've had kidney stones. We have migraine headaches. We've experienced pain and suffering. Some of us have gone through cancer treatment and all the various things that that entails, surgeries. Does it make you afraid? Of course it does. We're human. What about the loss of a loved one? I mean, I can count five or six of our congregation here who have not too long ago lost somebody they love dearly. As that progressed, were they afraid? I'm sure at times, even the most faithful of them were afraid. We as Christians say we do not fear death. But how about the fear of the process you might have to go through when you die? I know Marlene's talked about that in Sunday school. You know, a lot of times you go through a lot of pain and suffering before God takes you home. 
Many of us have watched or are watching a loved one go through this. Weeks, months, years of sickness, whether it's us or a loved one, it can make one fearful. John 5 verse 24 speaks to that a little bit. Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Well, that's encouraging. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we have longed to put our heavenly and we long to put our heavenly bodies on like new clothing. Now, I'm 74 years old. I get weary sometimes. I know there's people here older than that. You know, sometimes you get weary. Sometimes you just think, "Lord, I'm I'm ready. Take me home." And God very loving, lovingly says, no, I'm not done with you yet. So here's the tough part. It's very human to fear the process of dying and even death itself. Our strength comes from the knowledge that Jesus gave us. Death is a passage to eternal life with him. We have no idea what that's going to be like. Since in spite of all the verses about us, about it, it's beyond our understanding. You know, Paul calls a lot of things mysteries. I like that word. You know, you can, you can read all the books you want on heaven. The problem is nobody really knows. Is it going to be wonderful? Yeah. We have that assurance. So, you know, that's fear of death. What about failure? We've all gone through that, right? We all have things we've failed miserably at, and we wouldn't want to go through them again, right? Some, some from childhood, some from adulthood. For me, it was divorce. And that was a failure of my faith and of my character. I regretted deeply the damage I did to my first wife and my two kids. Now, God forgave me when I got saved. And he blessed me with a whole new family. But it took a long time for me to forgive myself. We've heard, I think, Barlene, you were talking about that a couple weeks ago. You know, forgiving yourself is tough. It's taken even longer to start to rebuild the relationship with my children, mostly because of fear, right? How are you going to rebuild a relationship with somebody that you hurt because you left? God can do it. God can do anything. What about job loss? What about financial ruin? Does that make you fearful? How, how many here are retired? Are you living the high life on what you got from the government? <laughs> from what you, what you paid in, right? Now, if you're smart, you save money, you have IRAs, you have all that kind of stuff, it's a little bit better. But the problem with being retired is costs go up and your income stays that and at some point the costs are going to cross your income remember remember from high school the old break-even chart they don't teach that anymore do they a lot of times our fears come from what i'll call social conditioning a couple of phrases 
and, and I know you younger people will not relate to this, but I know a lot of people here will wait until your father gets home. How about this one? Take out a clean sheet of paper and a number two pencil. You remember that? That, that makes you kind of sink right into your shoes when you're in school. Because did you study the night before? No. You were playing with your friends or watching TV or nowadays playing video games till midnight, right? Let a wasp fly through this building during the sermon and watch the congregation. It, it, it's actually kind of fun to watch it from up here. Now, what, what did we have the other week, Angel? Bees? Up here we had hornets or something. They were all over the place up here. Tuesday night at practice, Angel had a spider come down. And she did a nice little dance. Matter of fact, I encouraged her to do that same dance this morning, but she didn't do it. So what do we do about that fear? Well, we've got a guidebook that tells us a lot about how to handle it, right? It's right there in the, uh, under the chair in front of you. Let's start off with one of the most famous Bible verses about fear. Think about what happens when you go to bed at night. You're, you, have you seen those little memes with the brain and the person trying to sleep, you know? Well, your mind starts to turn over and over and over, usually about tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow? Well, here's the 23rd Psalm to the rescue. It says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, King James says, the valley of the shadow of death. I will not be afraid. You are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Now that psalm's calmed a lot of fears over the millennia. Oddly enough, I first heard it in high school. Strange place to hear Bible verse. Well, not in the 60s so much. A couple of interesting things to note in that verse. Just that one verse. First, the psalmist does nothing himself to alleviate the fear. He doesn't take a course in, you know, being stronger or any, anything like that. It's the closeness of God that helps him. Second, thy rod and thy staff protect and comfort me. Well, you know, a rod and a staff, they're both offensive and defensive weapons. Shepherds use them a lot. They used them to guide the sheep. They used them to fight off the, the animals. So God will defend us from fear, and he'll attack it as well if we let him. You know, sometimes we like to keep stuff to ourselves, right? Marlene was talking about that in Sunday school. You know, you do it in a dark room. Nobody's going to. God won't know. I think the Psalms are kind of a treasure trove of verses to use against fear. Here's another one, Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? That's a great line. What can mere mortals do for you? Know, so many of us are afraid of what other people think. Trust me, everybody says stupid stuff sometimes. I, I, I need only remind you of the Fetterman incident here a couple weeks ago where I said something stupid. And I was admonished by Pastor Anna. I was told, don't feed him stuff like that. He just runs with it. So 
you know, it, it's, we do things that we regret, but our trust is in God, not, not in mortals, not in people. Now that one was written by David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. You remember that story? He pretended to be a madman to, to, uh, so that they would let him go. What about God's speech to Joshua when he entered the promised land? He tells Joshua to be strong and courageous three times in the first nine verses of Joshua 1. The Bible admonishes us not to be afraid over and over and over again. Does it seem like God knew that fear would be one of the greatest weapons used by our enemy? I mean, there, there's, a, there's, there's a line out there that there's, there's 365 times in the Bible where it says, do not be afraid, one for every day of the year. Well, I can't find that many, but there's a lot. I mean, it's all through Scripture. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's in Revelation. So... Let's look, at, let's look at Luke 2, verses 8 to 10. And these are some of the most famous verses in the Bible. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. Now, can you imagine that? An angel, you know, an angel with the Lord's glory surrounding them appears. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. And these words in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 18. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Now picture that. I'd be scared to death. Well, what's John say? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Church, let me tell you something. We shouldn't be afraid. I mean, we have, we have that gentleman defending us and, and sitting at God's right-hand side interceding for us. You do something stupid, you pray about it, you ask God for forgiveness. Who does God see? He sees Jesus, right? Now, <clears throat> it says he laid his right hand on me. Did you ever ask yourself if that right hand is significant? We, we see that in the Bible a lot, the right hand of God. Some people say, I'd like to be God's right hand extended, right? Um, the right hand is understood as a place of salvation, refuge, and protection. Wow. 
It's the favored position for the firstborn of Joseph to receive Jacob's blessing. For the bride of the king, when, when you get married, where was your wife? She was over here, right? On your right side. And for the chosen one who sits at God's right hand while judgment is rendered upon the earth. Jesus sits at God's right hand. And what does he do? He intercedes as a priest for believers and exercises authority over all powers. So even that small item in Revelation has a great meaning regarding our position and why we shouldn't fear. John said he put his right hand out. He said, don't be afraid. One thing we have to understand is that fear and faith have something in common. They both ask us to believe something is going to happen that we cannot see. Fear says believe the negative. Faith says believe the positive. Fear says that pain that you are having is probably fatal. Have you ever looked something up on Google when you, when you like have a cold or something and you're like a death store in 10 seconds? Faith says that sickness is not permanent. God will heal me. Fear says our world is falling apart. Faith says God is in control. If you look at Psalm 27, David is facing war and rumors of war, which would have given him every reason to be fearful. Yet the first thing that comes out of David's mouth is a declaration of who God is. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. Wow. Can you imagine feeling like that? To be, to be in mortal fear and start praising God is probably one of the greatest gifts God gives us. How many of you have been in a situation in your car where, you know, it's one of those Jesus take the wheel things? You know, you, you skid on ice or, or something and you say, oh, God, help me. And he does. Instead of looking down at the darkness of his circumstances, David declared God to be his light. That's powerful scripture. What does light do? Light exposes the reality that the darkness was trying to cover. You know, if, if you're in a dark room and you turn on a flashlight, you can see what's going on. If you turn on the room light, you can see everything. Light cultivates life through its ability to produce warmth and generate energy. What, what do you do with seeds when you plant them in the wintertime in your house? You put a grow light on them, right? Light illuminates the path set before us so that we can walk forward without fear of taking a misstep. What's, what's the uh, scripture verse? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. So, so is light good? Yeah, light is good. Who's the source of all light? Jesus, God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, 
he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heavens, in heaven. In fact, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, right? John 8, verse 12 from the NIV, and I don't know if I gave him. Yes, NIV, there you go. Thanks, Brad. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's something to think about. If I follow Jesus, I'm never going to be in the dark. Now, that's not true. I can be in the dark, but I have the light of Jesus to follow. So what's it up to? It's up to me, right? I can choose to be in the dark. I can choose to use my faith in Jesus to shine a light on it. That, that, that applies to a lot of things. Sunday school this morning, we were talking about pornography. Poor Marlene had to teach a lesson on pornography this morning. Next week, I get to teach a lesson on homosexuality. Anybody that wants to volunteer to take that, I'll be glad, glad to uh, give it to you. But we were talking about, you know, light and how you have to shine a light on these things because the enemy wants you to keep things in darkness because that's where he's strongest. As soon as the light goes on, pew, you, know, you shine the light of Jesus, what's it say? The enemy has to flee, right? So in closing, and yeah, sorry, Pastor Jeff, we're going to get out early again this morning. In closing, I'd like to remind us of a couple things. Because you're supposed to sum this up when you do a sermon. When we acknowledge Jesus as our salvation and look to him as our light, we see God, God who, for who he truly is. You know, God is light. When we see our circumstances in his light, what happens to fear? It loses its grip right away, doesn't it? For the enemy's schemes can only prevail in darkness. Light has secured victory over fear. No stronghold of fear from the enemy can prosper in God's light. I, I, I can't stress how important that is. You know, when, when, you're, when you're facing a problem, pray scripture. Marlene says it all the time. Pray scripture. It's okay. That's what it's there for. God will bring it to mind. You don't have to worry. And you, and you don't have to say it's James 3, verse 15. Just pray the scripture. You know, My God says, I'm blessed when I go, go out, and I'm blessed when I come in. My God says, I'm a child of the living God. No stronghold of fear can prosper in the light. So shine the light on it immediately. Now, for some of us, if you're stubborn like me, it takes a couple days to a week while you're, while you're suffering in the dark before you say, hey, I can pray about this. In the name of Jesus, we have now the greatest stronghold of all, unshakable hope in the revelation of who he is. I mean, that's why, that's why Jesus came. That's why he gave us salvation. 
to give us that power. We don't use a tenth of the power that we have. We suffer in silence for too long because we forget that we can invoke the name of Jesus and stop it right away. All right, I, I'm sorry, I gotta let you go. I can't drag this out any longer. Yes, I could, but I won't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our light, for being our salvation. Thank you that your light casts out darkness, Lord, and fear. Thank you for the hope that we have of knowing who you are. Lord, we ask that you be with us this week, that you shine your light on all our fears this week and, and let us see them for what they are, just, just things that that don't have to happen. Lord, give us strength. Cultivate your grace in us, Lord, so that we can look to you for everything that we need. Shine the light on our path, Lord. Be with us as we go out into the world. Be with us and give us the strength to proclaim you in the world and not to pay attention to what the world says about you or says about us or, or anything. Just keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And Lord, we give you the praise and the honor and all the glory for this, Lord. We thank you so much for what you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.